Sarah Troop, and you're listening to The Cabinet of Curiosities. This week's episode, The Dybbuk Box. In almost every culture, there are folk tales, myths, and legends concerning mystical objects, the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, or Excalibur. Many of these stories tell of objects specifically created to contain or restrict a variety of otherworldly beings, demons, and monsters. Like the genie in a bottle, or Pandora and her box, these ancient tales still play a large role in our modern popular culture. Our story today concerns one such object, a wooden box housing various artifacts that made an eBay appearance in 2001. As the story goes, the seller, an antiques collector and small store proprietor named Kevin Manis, acquired the box at an estate sale, which supposedly was hosted by the grandchildren of a 103-year-old, now deceased, Jewish grandmother. The grandmother referred to it as a Dybbuk box and had left explicit instructions to A. Never open it and B. Bury the box with her upon her death. Clearly, the latter did not happen. One of the granddaughters speaks to Manis of her grandmother, who, she says, was originally from Poland, where she raised a family until the atrocities of the Holocaust befell them. The grandmother was a sole family survivor of a concentration camp. She eventually immigrated to the United States. Upon her arrival, she had only three items in her possession, one of them the Dybbuk box. After hearing the story, Manis, thinking the box would be of great sentimental value to the family, offers to return it. His offer is met with the bizarre reaction of the granddaughter becoming frantic and saying, No, you bought it. We had a deal. And going so far as to shed tears. Understandably enough, Manus wants to end this awkwardness immediately. So he collects his purchases and abruptly leaves He drops the items off at his shop, placing them in the basement workshop, leaves an employee in charge, and goes to run some errands. Not thirty minutes later, he receives a call from the employee, who is now hysterical, informing him that there was a break-in down in the basement. Manis rushes back to the shop to discover the aforementioned employee sobbing in a corner on the floor. Upon further investigation of the basement, there is the overwhelming odour of what many will later describe as cat urine. All nine light bulbs have been broken in their sockets, and ten four-foot fluorescent tubes are found shattered on the floor. There are no signs of an intruder. When Manis goes back upstairs to question his employee, she is gone. After two years of working with him, she never does return. 
Two weeks later, sans any more weirdness, Manis finally gets around to opening the box. First of all, you should know that the box is made of wood, with two cabinet doors on the face opening outward. They are adorned with two decorative grape clusters, one on each door. Inside, he discovers a couple pennies, two locks of hair, a wine cup, an iron candlestick held up by tentacles, a dead rose, and a sculpture made of four different stones engraved with Hebrew characters, as well as more writing, also in Hebrew, on the back of the box. As planned, he gives the thing, contents and all, to his mother for her birthday while she was visiting the store. He turns away for a moment, and when he brings his attention back to her, she is sitting, immobile and unspeaking, with a tear running down her cheek. She is completely unresponsive. As Manus calls for an ambulance, his shop is suddenly raided by all manner of authoritative officials, some in uniforms, badge flashing, and weapons drawn, saying something about seizing information. Crazy, right? Right. Preoccupied with his mother, Manis goes along to the hospital, where she still cannot speak, but is able to write on a piece of paper the words, Hate gift. He chalks it up to an ungrateful mom and dismisses it. In his original eBay description, Manus lists a litany of bizarre and questionable occurrences he attributes to the box. Unexplainable health problems, a rash of bad luck, freak smells, the appearance of shadow figures. The list goes on and on. He puts the box up on eBay, and the rest is urban legend history. Enter Jason Haxton, director of the Museum of Osteopathic Medicine, who has studied and lectured on antiques and artifacts for the large part of his life. He first hears about the haunted box from a student who works at the museum as an office assistant, whose roommate who was the winning bidder of Manus's eBay auction. Both he and the roommate also cite odd occurrences, misfortunes, and smells as soon as they take possession of the box. Haxton asks to see it a number of times, but it never does work out, and by this time, the roomie has put the box back up on eBay. Haxton and a friend hatch a plan to bid on the box and end up winning it. By this time, the story of the haunted box and its possible worst tenant ever is making the rounds. Soon the press comes calling and Haxton agrees to an interview with a rabbi that appears in a small Jewish publication. Without his consent, Haxton's name and personal information are included. He is soon inundated with all manner of disturbing emails. Many of them claim that by simply looking at photos of the box, they are stricken with unexplainable medical conditions and experience quote-unquote terrible things happening to them 
or loved ones, and they are attributing them to the box. Meanwhile, back at the museum, where the box is being kept, Haxton's co-workers also start experiencing demonstrations of uncharacteristic behavior in themselves as well as others, and sudden, unexplainable illnesses. Haxton himself is also having his share of problems at home. When he first gets the box, he awakens the next morning to discover his eyes are burning and terribly bloodshot. He has them examined by two doctors, who both diagnose him with the unnerving, spontaneous eye event, which leaves him with permanent eye damage. At home, he feels like someone is touching him when no one is there, and mysterious popping noises which seem to be emanating from random places in the walls of his house, as well as the appearance of shadow figures. Weary of the weirdness, and now a pissed-off wife, Haxton tries his hand at some various rituals and magic, in hopes of containing whatever may or may not be in the box. Of course, more creepy ensues, including the sudden and unlikely appearance of bees, which Haxton is extremely allergic to, a poisonous centipede, and a swarm of mosquitoes swarming around the proximity of the box. After all is said and done, all Dybbuk-associated weirdness seems to abate. Oh, except for that ectoplasmic slime he vomits up that night. And when his wife picks up the pair of pants he was wearing during the whole demon-ousting ritual the next morning, her hand suddenly and inexplicably breaks out in painful blisters. Haxton is now in full investigator mode. He delves into Jewish folklore and magic and discovers that a Dybbuk is a misplaced soul or spirit trapped in an endless realm of purgatory. Other schools of thought believe it to be a demon that can possess the body of a living person and control their behavior. For a number of months, Haxton makes great efforts to locate Manus, the original seller, to no avail. He finally tracks him down on a trip to Portland, where, you guessed it, the story takes a turn down Crazy Lane, and the expected inconsistencies begin to reveal themselves. Now, a reminder, dear listeners, that Haxton is a researcher. We take great pains to reference everything, cross-check sources and events. And just like mathematicians, we need to show our work. And Haxton takes great pains to do so here as well, even going so far as to hire a local research assistant in Portland. What he gets is an unraveled mess of stories and tall tales mixed in with both fact and possible unverifiable fiction. Manis agrees to team up with Haxton to uncover the facts underlying the origin and intentions of the box. Manis takes Haxton to his old shop. He speaks with Manis's mother, who doesn't want to talk about her encounter with the box, and they try to locate the house the estate sale was held at, where Manis claimed to have purchased the box in the first place. But he is not able to remember its exact location. Haxton returns home while Manus presses onward. 
Or so that's what he tells Haxton. Manis says he is able to get the estate sale address from a source, and goes to visit the house hoping the family still lives there. When the door opens, he is greeted by an old classmate who invites him in. After some chit-chat, he begins to leave, but is approached by an old lady, who seemingly walked straight out of a Polanski film. She mysteriously knows Manus' Hebrew name, and begins ranting about how the box chose him. After this creeptastic episode, the friend calms the old lady, whose name seems to be Sophie, down with a cup of tea, and they sit and talk. Sophie explains that at the advent of the Holocaust, she and a small circle of girlfriends tried their hands at magic and spellcasting. They decided to summon a spirit, a Dybbuk, to help them fight the Nazi regime. As women, they couldn't fight back in a normal way. They felt like this was all they had in such desperate times. One of the girls had a book they used as a guide and told the others, We can use what is in this book to fill our eyes and ears and thoughts with something other than death. We can use it to fight. Of course, others have stepped forward with stories of their own, including a handful who claim that they know Manus created the box as a hoax. None of the stories told check out completely one way or the other. All Haxton knows for sure is that he himself, a seemingly reasonable academic, cannot explain the myriad of strange occurrences that have taken place since the box entered his life. In the end, he commissioned some Amish woodworkers to create a gold-plated ark to protect and house the box. Mostly, I think, to protect others from the box, not the other way around. Perhaps these stories and practical traditions persist because we want to believe we can protect ourselves and the ones we love from danger, evil, and bad luck. The Dybbuk box has now taken its place among these legends. The question left is, if you had the chance to see it, to touch it, would you? If you'd like to learn more about the subjects featured here on the Cabinet of Curiosities, please do visit our website at cabinetofcuriositiespodcast.com. In between new episodes, you can fill your day with more macabre delights by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. Join us this Saturday night at the Eve Gallery in Pomona for Ghost Night. Sponsored by our friends, Ghost Hunters of Urban Los Angeles. We will have some of our artwork on display, as well as celebrating the debut of Gula comic issue number two, to which we have contributed a story we know you will love. I'm your host, Sarah Troop. Thanks for listening. Like a leaf that
from the tide. 